legendary tangentialist. That's me. This is Champagne is also a band podcast. One songwriter, one song. I'm Sven, your host for a journey into the music of Champaign-Urbana. Recorded in the Blue Box studio with a songwriter from the Champaign-Urbana music scene, past or present. Champagne is also a band podcast is proud to be a part of the Champagne Showers podcast network. Welcome to Champagne is also a band podcast. Today, I, you know, I left my notes on the floor. <laughs> so that's perfect. I love it. Take two. Welcome to part two of episode 79 with Brandon T. Washington. Sometimes we have episodes that go a little bit long, or we have some conversations that don't necessarily fit with the overall episode. So here is part two that includes some of the conversations we had, some of our side conversations, some of the things where we expanded on. We talked about the Iron Post for a little bit, the cover-up, a band called Third Stone. Then we finally chat about what keeps him in the CU area. So enjoy part two, seemingly like a clip episode, but we just talked about a bunch of things and I really enjoyed our conversation. So sit back listen to a few conversations. First up, our conversation about the Iron Post. You know, before the Rose Bowl was picking up different genres of music all the time, like they are now, the Iron Post was pulling that off Yeah, yeah. every week. I mean, so when I was in the Funky Butt Drum Club, we played at Paul. Paul Worth was a part owner in a bar called the Embassy. There, I think there's a, there's a Mexican restaurant in that space now, mm-hmm. right there on Main Street. That was our home base. Like we played there once a month on Sunday mm-hmm. nights. We would go in there and like all six of us jammed into this corner and the place would be full and we'd be doing our best to rock the house. Mm-hmm. That was where my relationship with Paul started. And Keith Harden played Tuesday nights there and he would have a special guest. He'd do like an hour and then he'd have the special guest come in for like second set and then some, and then he'd finish the night off. And I got into his rotation of special guests. I would do his Tuesday night like once every six or eight weeks or whatever. Paul had always done that. And he did that at the embassy. There would be rock and roll and blues and then whatever funky butt was. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just, you know, craziness. And there'd be all these different kinds of things. And then he moved down the street to the post and, and it was more of the same, you know, leaner uh, more emphasis on jazz because of the space was there we don't really have that so much either that's one of the things we need that variety needs to keep happening and hip-hop needs to be included in that loop which it hasn't been traditionally as long as i've been living here it's it right. seems like hip-hop's an afterthought and a lot of people have tried to bring it in and and it's done well it's had its own setbacks traditionally hip-hop hasn't really been included in that loop and i think that it needs to be even more so i do think that that's it i think we need we need more venues more open-minded venues so somehow a reference to pulp fiction got into a whole conversation about the great cover-up so sit back enjoy some great stories about the history and bands that Brandon played in and as at the great cover-up. 
a tasty beverage to wash that burger down. <laughs> <laughs> Are we going with a Pulp Fiction? See, I got a story for everything. Larry Gates, formerly of Lorenzo Getz, currently Curb Service. Larry did songs of Pulp Fiction for the great cover-up one year, and I was Jules Winfield. I sang Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon, and he and I did Jungle Boogie, and, you know, it was fun. He was dressed as, oh, Tim Roth. His wife, Lindsay, was Honey Bunny. Josh Meathy was Vince Vega, and I was Jules Winfield. I had a wig and everything, black suits. Ian Shepard was the gimp playing drums. You know, the whole thing <laughs> was playing drums. It was ridiculous. Nice. Yeah, I've done a lot of them. It's, that's, it's one of my favorite things to do. Can you tell me how many years you've played for the great cover-up? The first one I ever did, Temple of Low Men, did Peter Gabriel before the record came out. It was the winter before that spring we started recording. That winter, we did the cover-up. I think there's two years in there that I didn't. That whatever I was doing, either we couldn't get something together or things just didn't work out that the band could play one of the weekends that the cover-up was on. But I think I've done, and people who may hear this, like Ward Gollings and Mike Ingram, may be able to tell you a more accurate number because they were actually there for each one. I want to say I've done 19 or 20. Low Men did, oh God, we did Peter Gabriel, we did Paul McCartney and Wings one year. We mm. opened with Live and Let Die, kind of a little Guns N' Roses style a little bit, and just played really loud and a lot of fun. Do you, do you have a favorite a favorite artist that you covered? Man, see, <laughs> there's like there's so many of them that I loved to do because for different reasons. So Beat Kitchen did Queens of the Stone Age one year. I'm a huge oh. Queens of the Stone Age fan, and to be able to sing and play those songs was a lot of fun. Temple of Low Men did Rage Against the Machine the night after Bush got reelected in 2004. And this is this is just pre YouTube, pre everybody having a cell phone. So like, there's no footage of either one of those. I don't think. Bee Kitchen did Sly and the Family Stone one year. There's there's footage of that online. We also did Run DMC with Larry Gates. Larry was Run. I was DMC because I wear glasses. Anyway, I had contacts and big glasses and dookie rope and everything. And that was a whole lot of fun. Larry, as Curb Service, did the Beastie Boys. And I was Mike D because I played drums. We rapped and we did uh, No Sleep Till Brooklyn and Sabotage. And I played drums on both of those. And that was fun. Larry, as Curb Service, did Tribe Called Quest. We did Scenario. So I got to be Buster Rhymes and do his verse in Scenario, which is... I've done that verse a lot. If you're of a certain age... <laughs> Right. <laughs> I was in college between 90 and 94. That record comes out, what, 91? I lived with that. That, Chris Whitley's Living with the Law, Bob Mold's Black Sheets of Rain. I lived with those three records. Oh, Diggable Planet's first one, Reachin'. I lived with those four records in my Walkman my freshman and sophomore year of college. Oh, and Husker Du's Warehouse Songs and Stories. It was just those, those, I had a horrible, freshman year was awful. But music saved my life, literally, those two years. I know that Busta Rhymes verse inside and out because it was one of, it's just one of my favorite things. Like, the yeah. first time you hear that, you're like, wait a minute, what was that? Who is that? Oh my God, like, who sounds like that? To be able to do that on a stage acting as crazy as I want to be with a bunch of other, you know, CJ Run was on that. Don Teal, uh, Truth AKA Trouble. Uh, he he raps yeah. with Chase. Uh, they did, you know, Trouble Chasing. Yeah. He was on that. All right, just for the record, the episodes corresponding to CJ, Don Teal, and Chase. CJ is episode 17. Don Teal is episode 55. 
and Chase is episode 38. And it was me and Larry and Mike Ingram. It was an unreal experience. But the one, aside from Peter Gabriel, which is just still an all-time favorite, and Don't Double Pilots, I did Scott Weiland way over the top, no shirt, a feather boa, and makeup, and all kinds <laughs> of stuff. But one of the ones that truly actually affected me the most learning about the artist one of the things about the cover-up that's a lot of fun is for me at least because i'm a geek it's like oh who are we doing okay and then i read and watch and listen to as much as i can and of course concentrating on the tunes we're doing but try and learn as much about that artist as i can and that's just a trip for me because i love to read stuff about rock and roll and i love the rock and roll history of it and you know the criticism lester bangs and and chuck klosterman and stuff like that I, I like those things. A few years ago, Bee Kitchen, which is really, they call themselves Los Guapos now because they play a lot more gigs without me than with me. And they changed the name and we used to do a different thing. And they do jazzy Latin weirdo music now that's awesome. They're so good. The guitar player, Mike McLaughlin, teaches art right next to me at Dr. Mm. Howard. We've known each other since U of I. But we did Sam Cooke. What's really fortunate for us is that there's this live document live at the Harlem Square Club it's uh, the Sam Cooke album. Everything we did, we just took the versions from that because we were playing it live. And if you're going to play it like the studio versions, it's kind of hard. You know, it's just, it doesn't feel as full. But if you listen to it live and realize that this is what it sounded like because it was just these people and very little studio trickery back in the day, we did Change Is Gonna Come. My father grew up partially in Chicago from eighth grade on. My dad sang. And after his family moved to Chicago, he would wander down the street and watch the Highway QCs, which was the gospel group that Sam Cooke was in before he ended up in the Soulsters, which is before he ended up going solo and becoming a rock and roll pioneer. He used to watch him rehearse. He used to tell me that story when I was younger. And so subsequently, I was curious about Sam Cooke and like what he was about. And of course, I knew the things that most people had known, the tragic end to his life with the motel manager and shooting him and the questionable behavior around that whole situation. And we did this Sam Cooke set and so we get through the first two tunes, Feel It, Don't Fight It, and Cupid. We get to Change Is Gonna Come, and I start singing that song. And we all know that song was released right after he died. It's a very, very important song to people who were involved in the civil rights movement in the 60s because of the lyrics, primarily. And of course, this predates George Floyd by a couple of years. But we had already had Trayvon Martin, we'd already had Eric Garner, we'd already had a couple of other things, these murders that had happened. And I started singing this song and something happened that I had never have happened before. I started singing the tune and all of a sudden I was up above the stage at the Canopy Club looking down at my wife, the wives of my friends in the band, other friends that had come out to see the gig. It's always been one of my favorite things to see. New Souls is lucky enough to play. We've played The Taste and we've played Sweet Corn and we've done the bigger outdoor things in the summertime in Champaign-Urbana. One of my favorite things as a performer in this town has always been to see all of these different people from my work life, you know, school teacher and, and playing out and the nightlife and friends of friends and have them all in one place while we're playing. It's just a really life affirming thing for me. I don't know why it just is. And I'm singing this song that means so much. I mean, maybe I could call it an out of body experience. I don't know. In the video, you can see there's a point where I get choked up enough that you can hear it. 
and I was like, nope, I really got to sing this song. Yes, the emotions are working, but I really got to sing this song. I have to, because I, I owe it that. And at the end of the tune, I, I'm stomping my foot on the floor because I couldn't like the emotional energy that was going on at the time was unreal. There was, you know, the social impact of the song and my friends will recognize me saying this, but I've been black my whole life. It was just huge. It was a very poignant musical moment for me to sing that song in front of those people and to have them understand that in that moment, we weren't just being Sam Cooke. It was us, actually. And we were saying this thing. Mm. And it was really, it was very affecting. That was one of my very favorite cover-up moments ever. And I've had a lot of good, I mean, I, like I said, we, you know, Temple of Lumen were, but that Sam Cooke, man, uh, there's a point in Twist the Night Away, in the live version, he says, you know, I know you got a handkerchief, twist your handkerchief around. And, you know, I'm sure if there was film of that, you would have seen a bunch of people in the audience because it was the 1950s. Everybody right. had a yeah, had yeah. handkerchief. I bought 30, 40 handkerchiefs at Walmart and handed them out to everybody. And when I got to that point in the song, I pulled a handkerchief out. I know you got a handkerchief, please. and to see like all these handkerchiefs go and start <laughs> flying around, it was uh. awesome. <laughs> it was like you know, little. It's like my friend Ian Shepherd says: you got to turn the show knob up sometimes. And sometimes in rock and roll, and you know, we're playing out in alternative rock and everything. You forget that it's actually show business. There's an artifice to it, like you know, Tom Waits standing in front of a fan with a sleeve full of glitter and just starts letting the glitter out of his sleeve into the fan. So this glitter goes all over the auditorium. Where he's, I mean, you know, Tom, Tom Waits is not a very showy guy. Right. And he's not a very showy performer, just a very little thing. And it's just magical, you know, things like that. And you have to remember that you need to do those things every now and then. Otherwise you're just kind of standing there, especially when you go mm -hmm. like, old guy like me, where you're not, I mean, I am, uh, known for being very active on stage as I've gotten older, I still try to be active, but it's not nearly as manic and crazy as it used to be when I was, you know, 20 years ago, you still got to have that sense of show that you're bringing something. Hey, you came to see, you can buy recordings and listen to what we're doing, but you came to see something. Mike did Justin Timberlake one year yes. and I was part of the quartet of backup singers. That is kind of the genesis of where New Souls came from. We had done a few shows as New Souls. We had a different female singer. Cece joined us as one of the backup singers for that gig. And then New Souls in its present form kind of came out of that. But I always thought it would be fun. I'm like, man, I want to be a backup singer sometime. Just all you have to do is nail your parts. And nail your moves, and that's it. You don't have to worry about you know all the things that right. you have to do when you're the front person. So to do that and just stand behind him and like me and Kayla and Cece and the woman that used to sing in New Souls, Toya, it was the four of us. And you know we're grooving one arm at the beginning, push your love, you're ah. my drug. You know it was so much fun. And then I I got out and did the Timberland parts on Sexy Back. It was just this huge band, and we were actually it wasn't just Mike doing Justin Timberlake. It was Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids. I mean there were wow. fourteen of us on stage. One of the that was that was a lot of fun too. I got it. Yeah, the cover up has a lot of dude. I could sit here and talk about the cover up till six o'clock tonight. Okay, next is a totally random conversation that we had because I brought up something about typo negative 
And Brandon just picked it up and ran with it, talking about a band called Third Stone. And, well, this is how it went. So, did you ever get that typo negative, uh, <laughs> you know, record you were looking for? Typo negative. Yes. Um, wow. I know, right? That um, dude, R.I.P. Peter Steele. This man, in the, the mid-90s, I was really, I'm still really good friends with Tom Grasma, David Ward, Jeff Markland and Bryce Johnson. They were a band called Third Stone back in the day. Hard rock band. Loved them. Mostly because they were silly as hell. They were hard rock bands. So there's a fair amount of skull and depressing imagery and, mm, you know, what, right, what, right, right. what hard rock bands were in the mid 90s. Yeah. You know, post Alice in Chains and typo negative and right. things like that. One of the things I loved about Third Stone was they would play this really heavy music, but they always looked like they were taking the piss out of it. Always. <laughs> It was like, this is, this is, but wink, you know, it was always, there's a lot of that going on. I just, that always made me feel, but typo negative. We, there was a a bunch of us, Bryce and I and Ian all worked at Streetside Records, which was down the street from record service. It was a company out of St. Louis. There was, you know, back in the, trying to, the music boom kind of thing. And they, they had a store there. We all worked there. That was where I would hear things like typo negative. What was the song? Christian Woman, I think it was called. Blight uh, it, Number One. Bloody Kisses been, was the record. It's been like 20 years since I've listened to Typo Negative, just even even on purpose. Like well, I, I had a roommate in college that listened to Typo Negative, and it was I was always like, okay, sure. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, yeah. I mean, it was back, just a little too... It was a yeah. lot. It's yeah. a lot. Yeah. I, I love heavy music, but I'm not crazy about the imagery that goes along with it. A lot of the skulls and demons and stuff like that that's why i liked helmet helmet was great and had none of right that. <laughs> right you know it was great but it wasn't like honestly if i can't read what your band's name is i mean seriously for god's sake somebody somebody help me i i'm just i'm like some of the fun like, like, like no like seriously what? it's like you know your band was amazing. I've never seen anything like that when your band. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, uh, okay. Yeah, sometimes. But anyway, I mean, I mean, it's those funny. Typefaces, boy. You're like, <laughs> it just looks like a. It looks like it wants to hurt me. There's so many sharp edges in this, but I can't read what it says. Right. <laughs> it's oh ever so goodness. elusive. Yes. Yeah, so let's. <laughs> <laughs> Your band name um, like it wants to slash my tires. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, it's it's funny because it's true. Um, <laughs> uh, so, um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, we did get into a bit of a riff there about band names and the typeface so here's a little bit about his hometown of kankakee and why he stuck around in champaign urbana so you came here to the u of i yeah and somehow it sucked you back in and kept you here so it's been that environment this this music scene this place that it is that has kept you here there's that's been a big part of it yeah i'm from kankakee kankakee illinois I used to be in a band that actually was from Kankakee, and I'm just shouting them out because they're old friends of mine. Guys, I'm still on a text message with called Foo, and that was the very first time that I ever did anything. We recorded the the tape 
in my buddy's parents' house on my four track. We did the whole thing and put it on tape and sold like a bunch of copies of it. I left the band because I had to, I came down to U of I, I had to go to school and they got a different drummer and then recorded another CD and became like underground heroes between Kankakee and suburban Chicago. Mm-hmm. And yep, yep. you know, it's like that. I, I was always really happy that I was a part of that because we did the thing that we wanted to do. We wanted to be an underground rock band and we did it. Kankakee is actually a lot like Champaign-Urbana to the fact that mm-hmm. the metro, metro area is made up of three cities, Kankakee, Bradley, and Bourbon A, Illinois. Culturally, although that has changed, I'm not knocking my folks that still live there. And I've been actually been back to Kankakee to do a few things musically since I've left. Truthfully, being a public school teacher and living in a city with a major public university in it is very good for you because it makes it easier to do things like get a master's, which I got in 2015. There is a community of music teachers here. When I went there in the early 90s, U of I was the number three music education school in the country. Mm. I don't know how that ranking has changed, if it has, but I have been lucky enough, even on that front, to be able to work with these wonderful people in music ed at the U of I in my job, like as a music teacher in Urbana and then now in Champaign. I'm not sure how that would work in other places. I'm not sure if that would be as attainable as it has been here. That's huge, too, because, you know, that's my that's my professional life. That's where it makes it so I can eat. So it's, yeah. it's like I, a, you know, it's a big deal to me. Well, and it's, it also serves, you know, a, in your position currently, like it is a great resource, right? Yes. Like it's a, it's yes. a repository for information. It's yes. a place where you can find people that exist within your realm of teaching. So like right. you can, you know, even if you wanted to be like the physics of sound, you, you can right. find somebody right. at right. the university to talk about. Right. Of course, the logistics of all of that well, stuff. I mean, obviously. But but, I, <laughs> but but you are very much correct. That's a great thing about it. We li- live in a place where people like that are accessible. The whole thing is accessible. You need somebody that can talk about how they put music on the space probes that they shoot out in the space that are still traveling. You can find somebody to talk about that. The uh, Sousa archive is at the band building, but John Philip Sousa, you know, all of his papers and stuff are here. Yeah. And they keep, they have all these instruments and everything. And the guy that is the archivist there is great, man. He did a lot to try and bring us in there. And so there's this place of learning here that this, you know, these historic artifacts and kids can see Now you can't touch it very much, but you can see these things and understand how it worked, how music worked pre these cell phone things and computers and all that stuff. And I always thought that's really cool that we can do that. My buddy, Rory Grennan, he's an archivist, has a master's in library science and he works down in Florida now. After he graduated, he worked at the Sousa archives for a while, you know, because mm-hmm. there's a there's a thing about being an I didn't understand it before, like library science being an archivist. There's like things you need to know. This is how you archive something, you know, this is how you save something for posterity. I'm like, people ask him questions online and he answers them I'm like, wow, he really knows what he's talking about. <laughs> it's a thing. So I, you know, here I am talking about archivists. Told you, legendary tangentialist. That's me. Hey, thank you for listening to Champagne is Also a Band podcast. This is Brandon T. Washington reminding you, great music is out there. Go find it where you live.
that's a wrap. You almost have an NPR voice. It's so good. Studio South Beaker on the inside. I'm expressive, folks. I like to talk with my hands.